It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at Fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Today on Super Soul Conversations, author, scholar, and speaker, Charles Eisenstein. Charles is the author of four books, including his most recent, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. I love that book title. His premise is that no matter how disconnected we all are feeling, every person we encounter, every experience we have, positive or negative, mirrors something inside ourselves in all forms. Social media posts, news headlines, even something as simple as a conversation. Charles believes your individual being partakes of all beings in every moment you encounter. He urges readers to rethink the fury and indignation erupting between so many Americans and understand that what lies beneath the rage is actually a painful longing for reunion. So the reason I start with this is because everywhere you go, every conversation you're in, people are talking about this, but they're not able to articulate what it is. So we're looking at our current political climate. We're looking at um, living under a barrage of daily reminders, really, of how angry, how divided this country has become. It feels like we are experiencing right now a really teachable moment. Um, And that what I believe is that if we're not able to shift to some form of empathy and compassion, that we're going to move into a level of lessons that we really aren't prepared to learn right now. So do you believe our nation has been broken open? Not yet. Not yet. But it's coming. But it's coming. I would love to see our nation broken open. Sometimes we we say that about a person, like, oh, that experience just broke him open. Yeah. Broke him wide open. And now he he begins to sob, you know. Now the, the grief comes in. Now he changes his view of life. That hasn't quite happened yet. We're still holding on to the old story, the old normal. And part of that is what you were just talking about, the um, polarized, oppositional, hate-based politics, which is basically two sides holding on tighter and tighter and tighter to their polarized opinions about each other and their superficial diagnosis that the cause of the problem is those bad people. Yeah. Yeah. It's those people 
and then those people say it's those people, and then everybody is shouting each other down. I love the article that you wrote two days after the election this year. It was called... Hate, Grief, and a New Story. Hate, Grief, and a New Story. Yeah. And you wrote that because... Because I was alarmed and really saddened at the level of hatred and just the reiteration of war mentality. On both sides? On both sides, yeah. I mean, each side thinks that it's the other side who is the bad guys. And what I'm seeing is this pattern. This is, I guess, part of the mythology of our culture. It's a, it's a formula for making the world a better place. And the formula says, first, find the bad guy. Blame yeah. something. Yeah. And then go to war against that. Control that thing. Yeah. So That's the basis of storytelling. You know, you got to yeah. have the antagonist. You got to have the thing that you're fighting against. You got to find the hero that you're following. You right. Know? Yeah. Yep. Same pattern, like in almost every action movie. Yes. And what's missing here is the deeper matrix of causes that is much more complicated. So two things happen when you realize the real causes. One is that you don't know what to do because the usual solution of finding the bad guy and fighting the bad guy doesn't work. So you don't know what to do. I would love to see some politicians run for office and say, healthcare, immigration, I have no idea what to do. Like, wouldn't that be refreshing? If someone just said, I don't know what to do, instead of having to have a plan, yeah. which is gonna be a reiteration of policies based ultimately on this war thinking that don't work. And the second thing that happens is that you realize that I'm part of the problem too, or we're part of the problem too. It's not just some other person. And it's in, the same thing goes in- I don't think people yeah. realize that they're part of the problem. That's why I'm sitting here talking to you today, because I think that what you're doing with your essays is trying to get us to see that we are part of the problem. Yeah. Seeing our role in the problem, because I think we're still in that, it's that guy, he's the one, if they only just straighten their stuff out, right. if they come to their senses, or if they weren't deplorables, or if they want whatever word people want to use right. to try to put the other side, the other people who don't think the way they do down. So what you were ultimately saying in the essay on hate and grief and creating a new story is we got to stop the hating. Because it's a delusion, because it's based on judgments that aren't true. Like if I, if I say, and this is, happens in personal life too, that you're doing that because you're not quite as good a person as me. Because if I were you, in the totality of your circumstances, I'd do better than that. Mm -hmm. If I were poor, yeah. rural, white, I wouldn't be a racist. I wouldn't say such a thing. Whatever the story is, because in fact, if you were the, that person in the totality of their circumstances, you'd do that too. And any judgment that says, I'm different from you. I'm better than you. That means that there's a deficit of understanding. Yeah. So when you, and this is what I would call the, the new story or the next story yeah. of interbeing that says that in some sense, we're all one. If I were in your situation, then I would do as you do. So and if, I, if I think otherwise, it means I don't understand your situation. So the important thing, the question I thought was so vital that you brought out in your essay on hate and grief and our new story is, what's it like to be you? Yeah. Yeah. Which is fascinating to me, which is, you know, 
as I've sat in this chair in various forms, in various chairs throughout my career, that is really what I'm seeking to find when I sit down with a person, is what's it like to be you? And you're saying we each need to ask that question of the other and ask it not in a rhetorical sense, but really from a point of view of what is that like yeah. to be you? Otherwise, we're going to be trapped in the old drama of fighting the enemy. So like, for example, we're never going to... And we're going to lose. We're going to lose that fight. Even if we win the battle, we'll lose the war. Yeah. 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 Like you might be able to win the battle, say politically, by arousing so much anger and indignation and hatred against the other side that you overcome them in the next election. But what you will have done is strengthened the ground conditions of hatred. Martin Luther King basically said that. You know, you can, you can use hatred as a weapon, but you cannot use hatred to defeat hate. Absolutely. So you wrote an essay, as we've been talking about, after the presidential election, asking readers to stop feeding the hate that stems from thinking that they are better than anyone else, because you believe that all people are suffering from actually the same wound. So what do you think is the world's greatest wound? I mean, I call it the wound of separation. Yeah. That that it's the felt experience of being cut off from all that we're meant to intimately connect to. And then from that place, um, feeding the hate, you know, online comments that are all about putting someone down, kind of almost feels good to make jokes at the expense of somebody else, but does it really feel good? I think it feels good in that moment for people. I think there are people who feel really good when they can get off on a line on social media and they think they actually hurt somebody. Yeah. But I think this reality-based culture, do whatever's necessary, say whatever you need, you come out the victor no matter what at any expense, I think it's trained us to believe that being snarky is fulfilling. I think, that, I think maybe that the good feeling seems to me like it's similar to the to the feeling of getting a hit or getting a fix. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you feel good for a little bit. Yeah. But it doesn't assuage the underlying pain, the underlying grief, you know, the underlying. Yeah. And you're saying all sides are feeling this underlying grief yeah. and that it is not political, even though people might have used their, uh, you know, power to vote and acted politically, but the feelings that people have this feeling of separation, of not being valued, of not being important, of not mattering in the world is uh, pervasive on both sides. That's what you're saying. That's the water in which we swim. Yeah. That is the water yeah. in which we swim. As someone who studies human cultural evolution, you've suggested that profound change happens only through collapse. And right now, for millions of people, the idea of what's normal has come unhinged, as yeah. you say. Um, in your essay. How so? Well, we had a formula for how to do life. You study hard, you get good grades, and you'll, you'll go to a good school, you'll get a good job. You get married, you have... You job. drive a certain kind of car, yep. and you have a certain amount of square footage. And, and you, get, you get sick, you go to the doctor, the doctor fixes you, yeah. and you participate in this grand project of civilization. Mm -hmm. And you'll be okay. Mm -hmm. That story, on every level, has been disintegrating. It's not working anymore. We don't have the technological utopia that was promised to us 
back in the 50s, the 60s, you know, when, when we had these visions of the future with mm -hmm. an age of leisure, robot servants, space colonies, the cure of all diseases, it looked like we were going to do that as one disease after another yeah. was conquered. But since then, we've had all these new diseases arise, autoimmune diseases, that we have no idea how to solve, no idea how to cure. And in politics too, like the story of how American democracy is supposed to work, or the deeper narrative of America, land of the free, home of the brave, bringing peace and democracy to the world. Like all of these are getting harder and harder to maintain. One thing that happens before it really breaks down is that you hold on even tighter to the story that's not working. And that might be part of what's happening politically today. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you just can't hold on anymore. Macy's Mother's Day gift guide has the perfect gift to make mom feel special. Shop by price, like 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrance, handbags, and more. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything. Gifts that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted and for grandma. Get top gifts like Dolce & Gabbana Devotion, Eau de Parfum, Coach Floral Printed Leather Cassie Crossbody Bag, and Le Creuset Shallot Dutch Oven. Shop at Macy's.com slash gift finder. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. So do you see the election as a significant milestone in uh, the breakdown of our political system? Yeah, I mean, just like the idea that democracy works and you elect uh, wise, capable, compassionate leaders. Yeah. Uh, because that's the will of the people. And instead, we elect somebody who behaves very much like a bad person. I'm not saying that he is one. Um, in fact, I think that there's a trap there. Isn't he just a reflection? Isn't he just sort of a, a symbol, an avatar? of a cultural shadow that we're carrying or yeah. a cultural archetype that we are carrying? I often see it that way, that he's kind of making visible things that were invisible before. Yeah. It's not like he invented bigotry yeah. or, or misogyny, but they were kind of kept under the surface. It was, there was this polite veneer on top of that ugly part of American culture, and now it's plain to see. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe that's a good thing, you know, that, that something kind of comes up for healing. It, the invisible becomes visible. Mm -hmm. So I think it is perhaps a positive step. So was it you who once said that hate is a bodyguard for grief? Yeah, right. So, so like something really hurts. And that hurt is channeled through a story of blame and it becomes hatred. But if you channel it through a different story, or you, not through any story at all and you just feel it, then it doesn't become hatred. So what do you mean by we're not just separate ind individuals? Well, we kind of live in a mythology. Mm -hmm. And by mythology, I mean the story that answers really basic questions, like who are you? Um, what's the purpose of life? What's real? Uh, how do you create change in the world? What's the purpose of humanity? Like, these are really basic questions that every culture asks. Yeah, I actually asked them on the show. 
Well, yeah, so we've had a, a cultural story that answers those questions. And basically, it comes down to who you are is a separate individual in a world that is separate from you. That's an, an objective universe. And it's populated, this universe is populated by other separate individuals who are, since they're separate from you, you're basically in competition mm -hmm. with them. Their well-being doesn't mean that you're gonna be better off. In fact, their well-being can mean more for them and less for you. Mm -hmm. So we're in this constant competition surrounded by impersonal forces. So this story, I call it the story of separation. So on the human level, same story says that human progress and our destiny comes through the conquest of nature. And, and this is- And other beings. Yeah. That we see beings. as separate from ourselves. Right. Yeah. Right, so health comes through conquering bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. Or conquering nature, even like your own nature, mm -hmm. like health, virtue, wealth, et cetera, et cetera, comes through discipline, through exercising control over yourself, over your desires, perhaps. So it's this, the same pattern on an individual level, on an economic level, on a political level, and then also on like the ecological level, the human relationship to the world. So that's kind of the uh, big picture. Because mm -hmm. these are the myths that condition us yeah. to see the world. So what you're saying is, this is the way we have been operating up until now. Right. And that we are actually in the midst of creating a new story. But most people are not conscious of the fact that we're creating the new story. And that's why we're in so much confusion right now. Because a new story is evolving and a lot of people aren't aware that the new story is evolving. Yeah, um, because we're surrounded by the institutions of the old story. Mm -hmm. We still live in, in communities that aren't really communities because we don't know the people around us. Right. We're surrounded by strangers. Yeah. Where we actually know more about who's on the cover of People magazine. Yeah. Or we know more about the lives of people you don't know and will never meet yeah. than you do your next door neighbor. Right, so we feel lonely. Like, if we're not actually separate selves, then our beingness, our sense of being in the world, depends on our relationships. And when our intimate relationships are only in the family, I'm not talking about sexual intimacy, I'm talking about really being known. Yeah. When we don't know our neighbors and, we, and we're not participating in the natural world mm -hmm. in an intimate way, then we feel alone. We don't even know who we are. There's a deficit of identity when we're shrunk down into these little separate selves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because you have been feeling this. I think you call it in uh, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. What a beautiful name for Thank a book, you. actually. Yeah. Uh, you, you call it this, this sense of wrongness, that something was wrong. You could feel that there's a wrongness going on and you've been feeling this your entire life, even as a little boy. Yeah, just like that feeling of just sitting in school and it's a beautiful day outside. Yeah. And there's some part of you that knows it's not supposed to be this way. I'm not supposed to be filling out these worksheets. I had a, a politically radical father who uh, introduced me quite early to a bit of the true history of our nation, mm -hmm. the genocide underneath it, slavery, uh, economic oppression. Part of me was like, it's not supposed to be this way. But so much of the conditioning, the programming around me said that, no, you're supposed to be happy here. 
with the life that's offered to you. Yeah. And if you're not... Because everybody around you is telling you that. Yeah, go ahead. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. The authority figures are telling you that. You get an A if you do well on those worksheets. Yeah. And if you walk outside, you get in trouble and you get sent to the principal's office. Just, yeah. just that simple. So that knowledge, I think, for many people is a lonely knowledge. Mm -hmm. This knowledge that life is supposed to be more authentic, more intimate, more real. Mm -hmm. And this, this kind of low-level suffering that we take for granted, yeah. or for many people, high-level suffering that we take for granted, it doesn't have to be like this. Yeah. And this low-level suffering, another word for suffering you use, is separation. This feeling that you're disconnected, even though you are in a room or in a world where you are engaging with people all the time, but there's this low-level sense of disconnection mm -hmm. from community is what you're talking about. I love what you say uh, as early as page two here. You say... On some level, we all know better. This knowledge seldom finds clear articulation. So instead, we express it indirectly through covert and overt rebellion. I find that so interesting. Addiction, self-sabotage, procrastination, laziness, rage, chronic fatigue, and depression are all ways that we withhold our full participation in the program of life that we are offered. Well said, sir. Yeah. Thank you. And you write that when the conscious mind cannot find a reason to say no, the unconscious says no in its own way. What do you mean by that? Like you might have every mental reason to try really hard to make it, to be a success, to get good grades, to get a good job, to play the game of life as it's been offered to us. But there's a rebellion. I think it's a, a mutiny of the soul, I call it, that says, yeah, you can make me sit down in this seat, but you can't make me pay attention. Right, yeah. yeah. Explain why you think creating a movement isn't always a good idea, because I know here everybody's saying, oh, oh we yeah. need a movement, we need a movement. Yeah, how do you create a movement? Like, people say that, but real movements seem to start unintentionally. And I think that it's actually more true that movements create us. So someone goes out and plants a garden or builds a little house for a homeless person or does something like that, other people then say, yeah, that's a good idea. I think I'll do that. And it becomes a movement. Yeah. And these little small acts actually become, are like acts of prayer, don't you think? They're like, yeah, yeah when you because do a small, kind thing. You don't know how it's going to affect the world. But by doing it, you're making a statement of what kind of world I want to live in. And I think that it's a real mistake to condition these things on, okay, let's make sure it can go viral. Let's make sure it can scale up. Because most things will never scale up in any predictable way. And I think that the most important things that people are doing in this world are those that are invisible and even thankless. Mm -hmm. People like me and I mean, to a greater extent, you, like you have a gigantic platform or even take it up a notch, you know, the president or something. Mm -hmm. We think that these are the people with the power in the world because yeah. yeah. you can make a big wave. But how do you change the deep currents? And I have this intuitive feeling that the people who are really altering the future of 500 years might be like the grandmothers who are taking precious time one-on-one -on -one with a, a child, a sick child, yeah. 
or the kindergarten teachers. Yeah, I was definitely going to say the parents. The yeah. people who have the opportunity to alter the field yeah. and to create an open field for the world for the future are the parents. Those are yeah. actually the most powerful beings on earth right now, I think. Yeah. yeah. Anyone who's doing something out of love. Yeah. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You say, the fundamental precept of the news story is that we are inseparate from the universe and our being partakes in the being of everyone and everything else. Why should we believe this? Let's start with the obvious. This interbeing is something we can feel. Why does it hurt when we hear of another person coming to harm? Why when we read of mass die-offs of the coral reefs and see their bleached skeletons, do we feel like we've sustained a blow? It's because it's literally happening to ourselves, our extended selves. So if you're not a separate self, yeah. then what are you? You are maybe the mirror of all things, or you are the totality of your relationships. So that means that anything that happens to anything, to any being, is happening to you on some level. Ah. It means that any difficult relationship you have is mirroring something in yourself. Mm -hmm. It means that everything you do to the world will somehow come back to you. Mm -hmm. It means that the world outside of ourselves is not just a bunch of stuff, but it's a mirror of self. It has qualities like consciousness and intelligence that aren't just in human beings, but they're in all things, that, that pond over there, this tree. Yeah. It's why you can see a video, like I saw the other day, of a pelican wrapped in plastic, like yeah. sort of trapped in plastic, and I started to tear up. Right. Because there's a part of me that is so connected to that pelican, it felt like that thing was happening to it's me. It's happening to you. Yeah. Yeah. Everything that's happening to the world is happening to us. And whether or that's not it. we believe it, yeah. we can still feel it. Yeah. That's why it hurts yeah. so much. And we don't even know why. Yes. And the reason why we are so separated and feel so isolated and lonely in this separation is because we've numbed ourselves to the feeling that we are all connected. Yes. Everything is geared to, to, yeah. to, to pull you away from the idea that yeah. you are not connected, that you are separate. Right, so, so the, the, the story basically says that if we can only insulate ourselves effectively enough, yeah. build a high enough wall, a good enough surveillance system, yeah. Yeah, yeah, strong yeah. enough prisons, yeah. then we can keep the suffering out. Yeah. But it's not true, and we're learning that the hard way. If we destroy ecosystems, then our own health is going to deteriorate. Like, it's inescapable. We're all connected. That's what we're learning through a kind of cultural initiation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The only people who seem to get it right are children. 
Yeah, I mean, we're all born knowing yeah. that we live in a magical world, that, that we're all connected. Yeah, it's, it's an innate knowledge. The children get it. Yeah. And at some point, it's sort of drained from them. That's part of it, yeah. 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 OK. What are some of the principles of inner being? You know, I remember having a conversation with Thich Nhat Hanh, who yeah. also talks about this a lot. I think he might have actually coined the term really? interbeing, but it's a really natural word to use because it's not just interdependency and interconnection. Yeah. It's that my very existence depends on the existence of all beings. So if a species goes extinct, something dies in me. Mm. I become poorer. How then do we start to shift? I mean, I, I, I hope everybody goes to your website and reads the essay that you did on hate and grief and the new story we need to tell ourselves. But how do we begin to shift from what you call a culture of judgment to a culture of empathy? How do we do that? For me, like the basic practice is to ask, what is it like to be you? Especially if I'm in judgment. Because if I'm in judgment, yeah. that means my understanding is deficient. Yeah. Judgment meaning, if I were you, I'd do differently. Yeah. I'd do better. So if you ask, well, what is it like to be a racist? And how does someone become a racist? It doesn't mean that you're, quote, giving them a free pass. It means that you actually care. Or that you're normalizing racism or want right. to normalize racism. Right. Yeah. It's about, like, you actually care about healing racism. So you want to really understand it and not just get the ego gratification of saying of, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm right. I'm good. Yeah. Like, you demonstrate you're good by being on the side of good in the war on evil. We've had the war on evil now for several thousand years. Has it worked? How's that working for you? Yeah. Yeah, right. Time to try something else. Yeah. You believe that a more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Love the title. Thanks. <laughs> it's closer than close. Less than 60 seconds away. So how can people find intimacy, connection within one minute of searching? You, you, you talk about it here. Probably most people have had those experiences. Yeah. It might be at the bedside of a dying person mm -hmm. or having a deep spiritual experience where you're like, oh, it's all here already and everything is a miracle. We, we have these experiences. I think what I was referencing and what you were reading is the experience of gazing into somebody's eyes, you know, and you see, oh, you're the same being I am gazing out of a different set of eyes and, and you can have a really deep experience that way. Yeah. When I read that, I thought, yeah. you are so right. We go through life and we don't even allow ourselves the experience of gazing into a person's eye. I mean, it's, uh, I started thinking about it. how long do I actually look into a person's eyes? It's almost, in our culture, considered invasive. You're not supposed yeah. to, you know, continue looking into someone's eyes. You don't look at a person's eyes long enough to realize, oh, I'm in there. Mm -hmm. I'm in there and you're in here. It's kind of like, how you doing? Keep moving. Right. Yeah. Because if we did that, I think the whole apparatus of our society would stop working. Like, it's uncomfortable for a reason. It's uncomfortable because the world that is so familiar cannot accommodate that amount of connection and intimacy. It's actually kind of a threat. It says that the level of joy and intimacy that you've settled for is a lot less than what's possible. We're being shortchanged. And deep experiences like that are, are in a way kind of threatening. And sometimes people have an experience, 
could be, you know, a heart attack or something that really brings them into touch with what yeah. is real. Usually it's when something has gone wrong, mm -hmm. when people take the time to actually look in the eyes of a loved one yeah. and really see them. Yeah, it was a really interesting point you brought up. And so just taking the time to look into somebody's eyes for 60 seconds changes the vibration, the energy between the two of you, regardless, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, yep. And it kind of reconfigures what normal is. When you have an experience like that, like a lot of people, if they have a near-death experience uh, or a powerful transformational religious experience, mm -hmm. they go back to their normal lives. But those lives no longer seem so normal. Mm -hmm. And reality, as they'd known it, no longer seems so real. And so the hold of the old story is loosened. What can help change this us versus them mentality into realizing that we're all in this together? What we're talking about here, looking at each other in the eye, and what else? I think anything that rehumanizes other people. Sometimes people do processes where they bring people on opposite sides of a conflict together into a room mm -hmm. and create conditions where they can connect with each other's humanity. And the conflicts become not irrelevant, but they're put in a different light. Because when you see your enemy's humanity, then the operating assumption that had powered the conflict may change. And what do you envision as our new story? You've seen glimpses of new ideas that give you hope. Yeah. Can you share some? Yeah, like pretty much anything that is called alternative or holistic. It's basically anything that says that, yeah, we're connected. We're interdependent. Your well-being will bring my well-being. More for you is more for me. It's the mentality of the gift of generosity. What I give to the world will come back to me somehow because we're not really separate. Other cultures had this. Ancient cultures, indigenous cultures. In those cultures, your well-being, your wealth, your status depended on how generous you were. So you could give everything away and you know you'd be okay because people would take care of you too. So you were at ease. You felt at home in the world and you saw this in nature as well. You saw every being not trying to outcompete all the others, but every being offering a gift toward the health and evolution of all things. Mm -hmm. So this is from page seven of your book. You say, I'm not an avatar or a saint. I'm an ordinary man, and if my words fulfill their intention, which is to catalyze a next step, big or small, into the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, my very ordinariness becomes highly significant. It shows how close we all are, all of us ordinary humans, to a profound transformation of consciousness and being. If I, an ordinary man, can see it, we must be almost there. Yeah. Like we're all really, really close. We're already there in a new consciousness. So we need to help each other. You know, you have this, this breakthrough and yes, I'm gonna devote my life to this thing I love. But then the voices from inside and outside say, well, that's just irresponsible. That's impractical. You can't be that way. Yeah, you're it's, being naive. Yeah. And we need people to say, no, you got to trust that. Your inner knowing. Yeah. Your inner being. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for reminding us of the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Thanks, Thanks. Charles. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.